Today's scripture reading is from Leviticus chapter 23. You can find it on page 101, 101 in the Bible, under a chair near you at the end of the, of the pews. And please stand as you are able as we give attention to God's word. This is a rather lengthy reading. Leviticus 23. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. And on the fifteenth day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation, You shall not do any ordinary work, but you shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the firstfruits and your harvest to the priest. And he shall wave the sheep before the Lord, so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And on the day when you wave the sheep, you shall offer a male lamb and a year old without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the grain offering with it shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord with a pleasing aroma. And the drink offering with it shall be of wine, a fourth of a hen. And you shall eat neither bread nor grain, parched or fresh, until this same day, until you have brought the offering of your God. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheath of wave offering. You shall count fifty days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour, and they shall be baked with leaven, as firstfruits to the Lord. And you shall present with the bread seven lambs a year old without blemish, and one bull from the herd and two rams. They shall be a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offering and their drink offerings, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And you shall offer one male goat for a sin offering and two male lambs a year old as a sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And you shall make a proclamation on the same day. 
you shall hold a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. It is a statute forever in all your dwelling places throughout your generations. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do ordinary work, and you shall present a food offering to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, now on the tenth day of this seventh month is the day of atonement, and it shall be for you a time of holy convocation. And you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. And you shall not do any work on that very day, for it is a day of atonement, to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whoever is not afflicted on that very day shall be cut off from his people. And whoever does any work on that very day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall not do any work. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict yourselves. On the ninth day of the month, beginning at evening, from evening to evening, shall you keep your Sabbath. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of this seventh month, and for seven days is the feast of booths to the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly you shall not do any ordinary work. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as times of holy convocation, for presenting to the Lord food offerings, burnt offerings, and grain offerings, sacrifices and drink offerings, each on its proper day, besides the Lord's Sabbaths, and besides your gifts, and besides all your vow offerings, and besides all your freewill offerings, which you give to the Lord. On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days." You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths. That your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Thus Moses declared to the people of Israel the appointed feast of the Lord. 
This is God's word for God's people. All right. Well, thank you, Sam. And all of you, my son halfway through is like, how much longer is this going to be? Um, trying to expose you to a little bit of the flavor of the book of Leviticus without making the sermon 15 minutes longer. So uh, thanks to Sam for reading that. Let me pray for us as we uh, jump in and we're going to look at the book of Leviticus. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that you speak to your people. God, I pray that you would be in our midst, that you would open our hearts and minds that we might hear your voice as you speak to us through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last night, our family uh, went out to dinner at Chipotle, and we we're sitting there eating, and I'm, you know, we have four kids, and so just the, uh, the reality of eating with four kids is that you know, mom and dad don't spend a whole lot of time sitting still, and so we're walking back and forth and refilling drinks and getting supplies and all this kind of stuff. And every once in a while, as I'd walk past one of my sons, I'd grab a chip out of his, his chip bag and just eat his chip. And um, not the one who just had that reaction. <laughs> and uh, about the third time I did that, I grabbed a chip and he says to me, Dad, stop stealing my chips. I thought, you know, that's a funny thing, because I'm pretty sure I just opened up my wallet <laughs> and paid for those chips that you're now accusing me of stealing from you, son. Um, we've all seen that happen. We've all been, you know, the one doing that. We have a tendency as human beings to get very possessive of things that were given to us as a gift. We have a strange tendency to get very possessive about things that aren't really ours. And nowhere, I think, do we feel that tension more acutely than when someone has the startling audacity to tell us about how we should think about our time. Uh, we are people who are crazy about our time. We are protective of our time, and we don't want anybody to tell us what to do with our time. Uh, when my wife very innocently, very kindly says something like, hey, um, do you think you could come home a few minutes early this afternoon so I can, I don't know, something silly like go to the doctor without bringing four children with me. I can't even begin to describe what happens inside my person when she says something like that to me. My blood begins to boil. We've never actually talked about this, thankfully, <laughs> because I couldn't talk about it other than to do it in a public forum. Um, oh my, that is my time. How dare you, how dare you make such a request of me? Don't you dare tell me how to use my time. Few things make us more crazy as people in the culture that we live in than somebody else telling us what to do with our time. We live in a time where we are frantic. We have more to do than we have time in the day to get it done. And um, so we, we, we live with this paradox that we, we, we tell ourselves that we are busy and that we're running around like crazy. Uh, and we start to wear it as a badge of honor. I have, um, like it really, I, there's something that, that makes me very proud of the fact that when I, when I say like, I'm just drowning in email. Like you wouldn't believe, like, you, it's like, I'm so important, I can't even keep up with all the people, right? Um, it's like a badge of honor. And because, um, it, you know, what do you say when, when somebody says, how are you? You say, well, 
I'm busy, right? Like, you don't even have to say anything. It's just like, <laughs> wow, you must be really important, right? And if you're not busy, like, what's wrong with you? What's, why aren't you busy? What's wrong with that guy? What is he, does he have anything to do? Um, and a whole industry has grown up around it with books and blogs and journals that promise to help us be more productive and make the best use of our time. Um, I read a, a prominent British journalist recently saying that he knows a lot of these authors who write these like personal productivity blogs, and he says the authors of those, like how to be more productive, they're busier than anybody else. You know, They're failing at productivity just like everybody else. They're just making us all feel guilty about it. Um, so we, we live in this time where, where we think we're busy, we tell ourselves we're busy, we're trying so hard to stay on top of it, and yet we always feel like we're failing. And our time is our most precious resource. I mean, think about this. Time is the one thing you cannot buy more of. It doesn't matter how wealthy you are, you cannot buy more time, you cannot stockpile an excess of time, and once you've spent your time, it's gone forever. It's never coming back. We think that time is our possession. I think that, I think that my time is my time. And we're very touchy about other people telling us how to think about it. Um, in Lord of the Rings, you know, the epic series, Lord of the Rings, one of the major uh, storylines in the Lord of the Rings is about the stewards of Gondor. And the steward of Gondor originally was an advisor to the king of Gondor. And he was, he was an advisor, he would give advice to the king. And in the king's absence, he, would, he was the caretaker of the kingdom. Uh, but the king has been gone for a long time in the Lord of the Rings. And the stewards of Gondor have begun to think of themselves not as caretakers in the king's absence, but as the actual possessors of that kingdom, as the rightful rulers of the kingdom of Gondor. And so when the rumors and whispers began to reach the steward that the king is returning, the steward, the caretaker, actually finds himself fighting against and opposing the returning king. And I just think that that is such a powerful picture of the battle that is going on in each of our hearts. That we believe we own something that we are just stewards of. And the Bible would have us believe that everything, that God created everything that exists, all of our resources, all of our money, all of our time, all of our possessions are his. And we are just stewards of them. We are just stewards of our time and our talents and our treasure that the king has given us as a gift. And yet when we hear the king is present, that the king is returning, we don't like that, do we? That's mine. Keep your hands off of my time. We're in the middle of this short series through the book of Leviticus. If you're visiting with us, believe it or not, we're actually spending seven weeks in the book of Leviticus. And we've been trying to see what is this ancient, this, probably the most obscure book in the Bible, what does it have to say to us in 2017? What could we possibly uh, learn or, or, or take from this, um, this, this strange book? And I have to say, Leviticus has just been blowing my mind. Um, Leviticus, I think, is a little bit like going to the doctor and getting a shot. Uh, you don't really want to do it, but, but at the end, it's really good for you. And, and there is something that is being con conveyed to us in the book of Leviticus that we're just missing. And the more I slow down and the more I, the more I study the book of Leviticus, the more I'm just 
blown away at the, at the riches that God has for us in this book. So far what we've seen in Leviticus is this, that if you're going to approach God, you have to approach God by way of a substitute. That a sacrifice has been made on your behalf, and that is what allows you to come into the presence of God. And ultimately that leads us to Jesus, that points us to Jesus. But the burden of the book of Leviticus is not... Um, to teach us about these like obscure and, and now maybe very irrelevant rituals. Um, like we're just listening to an interesting lecture on the ancient practices of a people group that has long since died out. Uh, the burden of the book of Leviticus is to bring us into the presence of God and to help us see that, that worship and, uh, and the pr- experiencing the presence of God is not something that we do just in, in isolated periods of time on a Sunday morning or you know, in, our, in our quiet time, or in a Bible study. Um, the burden of the book of Leviticus is to help us see that all of life is lived with reference to God. That everything is sacred, because everything is His. We think it's ours, but it's not. It belongs to God. And nowhere is that more true than when it comes to our time. You know, we're all familiar with the phrase, uh, living on borrowed time. Uh, you know, the idea that uh, maybe, maybe, maybe you've had a parent, maybe a grandparent, maybe somebody you know has uh, been told by a doctor, you know, you have a, you have a terminal condition. You have, a, you have six months to live. And yet, praise God, 18 months later, they're still alive and well. And we would say, you know, he is or she is living on borrowed time. Well, guess what? You are too. It's all God's time. It's all his time. And we're just living on borrowed time. Everything that you have has been given to you as a gift. You don't own your time. God says it's mine. But there is good news because God gives his people rest. God gives his people rest. Holiness is a big deal in the Bible and especially in the book of Leviticus. And holiness, we, you know, has the, the, conjures these images of like uh, monks on a, uh, you know, on a mountaintop isolated or whatever. But the word of holy means set apart. The simplest way to think about holiness is to think about, it just means difference. And God is saying to, um, God is saying my people are going to be different. In this world where people are running around like crazy and wearing it as a badge of success, my people are going to be different. Because my people are going to be people who rest. It's an incredible thing, isn't it? Uh, I have to say, before we really, in some ways, get into this, I said this to my wife this morning. This is one of those Sundays that if I do this well, you are going to think I'm a total hypocrite when I go home. Because uh, I, am, I, am, um, I am learning about my need for rest from the book of Leviticus. So I want you to see three things in this passage. Uh, first, we need to see the pattern of sacred rest. And then secondly, I want you to see uh, the connection to Jesus, the person of sacred rest. And then thirdly, the practice of sacred rest. I think that that is the first time I have ever had a alliterative sermon. You saw it here first, okay? <laughs> so, the pattern of sacred rest. Remember the context here. Israel, the people of God, have been in slavery in Egypt for 400, probably 430 years. And God has just brought them out of slavery. And one of the first things... Um, One of the first things God does, having freed his people from a life of slavery, is he sets up a calendar for them. 
And he says, you are going to, as you live throughout the year, you are going to live in such a way that you are regularly and routinely, it's brought to the forefront of your mind that I am a God who has worked on your behalf. Um, so God says, I'm going to mark out for you special times to remember me, a series of holy days or holidays. I mean, think about where does the word holiday come from? Uh, a holiday is a holy day. And so God says every week, one day out of every seven days, you're going to have a holiday. Uh, the Sabbath day, you are going to rest because uh, in the book of Genesis, God created the world in six days and on the seventh he rested. And so on the seventh day, God's people are going to rest to remember that God is the one who, who created us. And then throughout the year, you're going to have seven holidays. Um, and I'm not, just to kind of give you a flavor for a couple of these. Uh, the, the year started with the Passover. And uh, on the Passover, God's people remembered that as they were leaving slavery, as they were leaving um, Egypt, um, that they, God, God told them that you are going to, uh, you are going to sacrifice a lamb. And you are going to sprinkle the blood of that lamb on your doorposts. And because the blood is sprinkled on your doorposts, the angel of death will pass over your household. And so every year, the people of God are going to celebrate a simple meal to remember that God is the one who has delivered them. And then uh, the, feast, the next feast is the Feast of the First Fruits. And um, they would take the first fruits. You know, this was an agrarian society. Uh, you know, people are farmers. And, and, and when the harvest comes, you're going to take the, the, the first kind of... Uh, the first harvest of your crops, and you're going to gather them together, and you're going to bundle them up, and then you're just going to wave them in the air. And it's going to be this, this, this kind of tactile, tangible reminder that everything we're going to eat this year was given to us by God, that God is the one who provides for us. And then the Feast of Weeks. Uh, Fifty days after the Passover, the Jews celebrated the Feast of Weeks, and this was a big deal. And, and when we read it, it talks about not gleaning to the edges of your field, to leave room, or not, not harvesting, so that the poor have room to come in and glean food for, that's left over from the edges of the food. And so it's this idea of the, that God's people are going to be characterized by, by caring for the poor. Um, and then this interesting one, the Feast of Booths. Um, they build booths. They go up on the roofs of their houses and they build these little like forts. Uh, they gather sticks and they build these forts and they live in them for a week. And it was uh, to remember that God, God's people lived in tents in booths when they came out of slavery and entered into the promised land. So these seven, I only talked about like four there, I think, but these seven holidays marked off the year for the people of God as ongoing reminders of God's incredible grace to them. Um, but what did what did, what did the celebration of these of these festivals sound like? Um, uh, Sam said to me earlier this morning. He, he said, um, you know, a, a solemn convocation. It doesn't say a solemn convocation. Does it? it says a holy convocation, a holy. It's a different. It's not this. Um, it's not this. Like okay, we have to. God is forcing us to observe this really dull religious ceremony. I, I um, have a distinct memory when I was in seminary. Um, my Old Testament professor pointed out the fact that, did you notice that it specifies what month and what day of the month each of these festivals is to be, to be observed? 
And many of them, if you notice, it's on like the 15th of the month, right in the middle of the month. And I remember my, my Old Testament professor you know, pushing us to say, why? why do you think that is? Why? Um, well, the Jews, um, they, they, uh, they used a lunar calendar, right? A moon-based calendar. And if you think about in the middle of every lunar month, what is the moon doing? It's a full moon in the middle of every lunar month. And so what, it, what it's saying is that when the, when the people of God were to, to stop working, to observe these feasts and these festivals, it was to be done at the time of the month when it was naturally light out at night, right? And so the idea is that this is not just some like really obtuse, boring thing that you've got to get your kids to be quiet and sit through and it's just going to be awful that God is going to afford it. No, it's a celebration. It's a feast. It's done during the time of the month when it's light out so you can stay up late and you can hang out with your friends and you can eat and you can find your way home. You know, when you've had a glass of wine, you can still make it home because it's a light out. Um, the feasts were characterized by three things. They stopped working, they worshiped, and they celebrated. Isn't that amazing? So God is saying one day out of every seven, you're going to rest from your work. And then seven times a year, you're going to rest from your work. And then we didn't read, I didn't have Sam read um, chapter 25 also, but in chapter 25 of Leviticus, it talks about uh, every seventh year is going to be a Sabbath year. So every seventh year, you're going to take the whole year off. Can you imagine? <laughs> and then every seventh Sabbath year, so seven times seven years, maybe 49 years, is going to be the year of Jubilee. And the year of Jubilee, all, uh, all debt is canceled and all property goes back to its original owner. It's a startling, um, it's a startling economic system. Um, but don't miss what's going on here. Throughout Leviticus and throughout the whole Bible, God is going to great lengths to say that my people are going to be holy. Uh, can you imagine if there was one nation on earth that just didn't work every seven years? I mean, wow, that would be different, right? And God is saying, my people are going to be different than everybody else. I'm going to order your time so you have a constant reminder on your schedule that you are different. And the thing that makes you different is that you are mine. God says, I am holy, and therefore you are holy. And so you are going to express the fact that you are mine by resting. By resting. You have to see how foreign that is to our, to our mindset. Um, what this is telling us is this, that you are at your holiest when you're resting. Is that, the, is that the image that we have when we think of a hope? Like, when somebody talks about a holiness, the first thing I think is, oh, gosh, when was the last time I read my Bible? You know, I have not been praying nearly enough. Like, that's what we, holiness is like, I better get to work, right? No, the Bible says you are holy when you are resting. You are holy when you are resting. And so therefore, because um, the thing that makes you holy is not what you do, um, the thing that God, God is saying, the thing that makes you holy is not what you do, but it's that you cease to do because I have, I have done for you. I have worked for you. And therefore, I want my people to regularly stop working to demonstrate their trust in what I have done for them. But could we get more done if we worked seven days a week? You know, 
I know that we're, we're like, what do you mean seven? Like, we worked five days, right? That's a relatively recent phenomenon. Uh, God's people had not had a day off in 430 years. And God now says, I want you to rest one day a week. Could you? Yeah, of course you could get more done if you worked seven days a week. But God's saying, I want, I want you to know that because of the way I'm going to relate to you, you don't have to get as much done as you possibly could. You don't have to keep working. You can rest. You know, it's really common. I meet people all the time who say something like, I just think that God accepts me as I really am, as I, just as I am, right? That's great. Prove it by resting. Prove it by resting. Chariots of Fire is a, is a famous, famous film, older film. It's the story of two men who are Olympic runners. They run uh, for England. And um, uh, one of these men, Harold Abrahams, is a, um, he, he is kind of wrestling with this internal angst and this sense of, um, of am I going to be good enough? And, and at one point as he's, as he's dealing with this, he says, um, he, he's picturing getting into the starting blocks at the beginning of his race. And he says, I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? He's talking about this inner angst that we all feel that says, I am only as good as my most recent performance. And he's wrestling, saying he's one of the fastest men on the planet, and he doesn't know if it will quiet his inner restlessness. On the other hand, is a man named Eric Little. And Eric Little is a Christian, and his sister is kind of this like, uber pious woman who is just badgering him and she's saying you're wasting your life with this running thing because you need to give it all up and move to China to be a missionary and serve God and Eric Little says to his sister at one point in this film he says yes I know the Olympics are coming to an end the running's coming to an end and I'm going to go to China but he says here's what you have to see he says I believe that God made me for a purpose yes I'm going to go to China but he also made me fast. He says, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. Isn't that a beautiful picture of, you know, the two men, two of the fastest men on the planet, doing the same thing for the same team, and yet one doing it to try to quiet his inner restlessness, and the other one doing it because he knows God loves him. One of the, um, one of the uh, kind of, turning points in the film is when they schedule the final heat for Eric Little's race on the Sabbath and he's able to just walk away because he doesn't have to do it. He is not defined by what he does but by who he belongs to and therefore he can rest. Okay. The pattern of sacred rest. Secondly, much more briefly, you will be happy to know is the person of sacred rest. What you have to see is that this isn't just, again, describing the calendar of the ancient people of Israel, but Jesus, when Jesus comes and he begins to, he begins to uh, talk about who he is and what he, is, what he has come to do, and it becomes clear that Jesus has come to bring the reality of God's presence into the lives of God's people, Jesus explicitly identifies himself with each of these feasts that marked out the, uh, the religious worship of God's people. 
he, he begins to say in a way that, that this holiday calendar is a template to show the truths that he is bringing to, into reality for his people. Let me just throw, show you a couple of examples. Uh, the Passover, central to the life of God's people in the Old Testament. Do you think it's just a coincidence that it, it was the night before the Passover that Jesus sat down to celebrate his last supper with his people, uh, with his followers, to eat this simple meal? And he tells them that he is the lamb that will be sacrificed for them so that God's anger over human sin will pass over us. The Apostle Paul makes the point even clearer in 1 Corinthians 5 when he says Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, Paul talks about the first fruits um, offering, and he says Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. God is the one who provides everything his people needs, and he does so for us in Jesus. And then the Feast of Weeks, uh, because it was 50 days after, after the Passover, it began to be called Pentecost, you know, Penta for 50. Um, and that was the time when, uh, uh, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when God's people are gathered in the temple court, when the Holy Spirit comes and fills God's people with the very presence of God, and the New Testament church is born, and God's people begin to go out into all the world to care for the poor and the oppressed and to make God's presence known. Do you see, for thousands of years, for thousands of years, God's people have said, we are different because we are people who rest. And then when Jesus shows up and he says, all of those holidays, all of those feasts, all of those feasts, all of the way that you relate to your time was ultimately preparing you to meet me. In Matthew 11, Jesus stands up and he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and who are burdened and who are heavy laden. Come to me, for I will give you rest. He's not talking about, um, you know, if you need a nap, come to me. He's talking about a, a, like a soul REM sleep, a deep rest that will quiet the restlessness that each of us feels. Look, I think that you are kidding yourself if you don't see that our obsession with busyness in the world that we live in is an attempt to cover something, is an attempt to hide from some greater reality. Uh, I, I read something this week or two ago. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to hedge it a little bit. I, I, didn't, I don't know if this is true, but I believe this is true. Um, I, I, read, I read an article that was saying that 50, we are no, actually, by objective measures, we are not actually busier than human beings were 50 years ago. What's changed is not that we have more to do now than we did 50 years ago, it's that we have as a culture sort of adopted this frantic mindset where we tell ourselves that we are busy. And because we feel like we're busy, uh, we are running around like chickens with our heads cut off. And all of this busyness is simply an effort to hide the unrest of our hearts. And Jesus comes to us and says, I want to satisfy that. I want to give you rest. I want to provide rest for your restless, anxious longing. And therefore, when Jesus comes, we see that there is a profound sense in which all of life is rest for the Christian. 
Because a Christian is a person who no longer has to work to prove that he or she is good enough to other people or to yourself. You don't, a Christian is a person who has said, God is my savior. God is my deliverer. God has accomplished my everything. And therefore, I don't have to work so hard. I don't have to work so hard. I don't have to work crazy hours to justify my existence. A Christian is a person who can rest. I was talking to a, a neighbor recently. He's a contractor. And... Um, I, you know, I see him all the time. He's, he's working like crazy, crazy hours, Saturdays, all the time he's working. And uh, we were talking, and, um, and uh, I was just asking him about what do, you, what, do you, what do you do, and he tells me, you know, I'm a contractor. And, and then he said, he just kind of threw this in. He said, I can never find good help, so I have to do it all myself. And when he said that, you know, I thought, no offense, but I think you just revealed a lot more about yourself than you meant to. Um, if, the, if we did not find anybody who was able to help us, I think we're revealing far more about our own, the state of our, of our hearts, our own inner anxiousness, than we are about the number of things that need to get done. And Jesus comes to us and says, I have satisfied the judge. There is no one who can accuse you any longer. I have, I have satisfied, you know, that thing that nags at you, that... that um, that tells you you're not enough, that inner restlessness has been satisfied by Jesus. So you can rest, Jesus says, knowing that my work, my work is enough for you. Isn't that great news? Well, look with me thirdly then at the practice of sacred rest. Okay, that's great, but what does that actually mean? What does that actually mean? For I think there could be two ways to totally just miss the point of what Leviticus is saying. And the first would be like the lazy option, which is to be like, there's, we have to admit, there's, there's some of us who are just like, yes, now you're speaking my language. Um, like this is a justification for laziness. And I'm not going to unpack that, but no. <laughs> um, it, it's, it's six days shall you work, <laughs> right? Uh, do we work six days? We tend not to work six days anymore, right? Um, Laziness is not the answer, but a pattern of meaningful work punctuated by rest is what God is inviting us into. But the second thing I think, uh, the second way we could apply this in a, in a mistaken way would be to say something like, this is awesome, I wanted to go on vacation, and then I went to church, and the pastor told me I needed to go on vacation. Like, that's awesome, right? Now, there's nothing wrong with vacation, but we have to, I have to say that there's a difference between vacation and rest. Um, because when we think of vacation in our culture, um, you know, you think about like that Corona commercial where it's like a beautiful beach with beautiful people and a cold beer and nothing else to do. And it, what's the tagline? Like, find your beach. Right. And we think of um, vacation as like I work slavishly so that I can go and I can just check out and I can I can have some me time. Right. And what the Bible, I mean, there's nothing wrong with vacation, but we've all had the experience that we go on vacation and we come back exhausted. I was talking to somebody who, who, I mean, have you heard the phrase, like, I need a vacation from my vacation? Like, people say that, like, seriously today. Um, uh, That's crazy, right? But the Sabbath is not, rest in the Bible is not about self-indulgence. It's not about finding some me time. 
It's about rest and worship. It's about, um, I mean, what does that I need a vacation from my vacation means? It means I stopped doing anything and it didn't, it didn't satisfy the unrest. It didn't satisfy what I really needed. Um, we tend to think that of, uh, of rest as something like, I'm going to go on vacation, I'm going to spend all this time working, and then I'm going to go on vacation, and it's going to be some kind of like college spring break style, like semi-maybe sanctified, maybe not so much, um, just, you know, no holds barred, it's going to be crazy, right? The Sabbath is not about self-indulgence. It's not about getting some me time. It's about rest and worship, rest that is restorative. Okay, so having said that, let me give you three practical um, suggestions about, about what it would look like for us to actually rest. Um, to view our time as if it's not our time, but it's a gift that God has given us. And the first, I mean, this is obvious, it comes right out of the text, but this is going to totally redefine the way that we look at worship and church and our Sundays, isn't it? Um, as a culture, we have just completely given up on the idea, and, and you know, as a culture, maybe that's fine, but as a church, we've given up on the, time, on the, on the idea that, that, that the Lord's Day, that Sunday, is set apart. Um, we've seen here the connection between these feast days and Jesus and we've seen that, that these feast days in the Old Testament, they find their fulfillment in Jesus. And I've just said that, there's a, that all time is sacred and that there's a profound sense in which all of our lives as Christians it, are, are, are about rest. But that doesn't simply mean that because these feast days have been fulfilled in Jesus, that they are therefore obliterated by Jesus. And when you read through the Bible, um, what you'll find is that the Sabbath, this weekly rest, resting one day out of every seven, is sort of the, the, the feast day, the rest day that anchors all the other days of the week and all the other holidays. Um, for thousands of years, literally for thousands of years, God's people have rested one day out of seven. They've had this, we've had this rhythm built into our lives where we work six days and we rest on the seventh. Um, rest did not just mean physical rest, though that's part of it, but there's a deeper, satisfying, spiritual rest that's communicated here. And let me just say this. This is why we make such a big deal about going to church. I promise you it's not because we just want to have a bigger church. Okay, it's like a tiny bit because we want to ha I want to have a bigger... But it's really not. It's really about... Um, it's about holiness. It's about the need that you have to hit the pause button, to rest and acknowledge that God is the one who satisfies your deepest need. Holiness means being different. Holiness means learning to rest. And I promise you, I promise you that if you learn to rest, if you make rest on Sunday a regular part of your life, that you will look different. You will look different than your neighbor's and your coworkers and your friends who are running around like chickens with their heads cut off on Sunday morning. Um, for some of us, we need to reacquaint ourselves with the fourth commandment. Uh, you know, there's like, there's a lot of laws. <laughs> there's a lot of things in the, ten, in the Bible that God says this is what you should do. And the 10 commandments, God says, you know, don't kill anyone. Don't sleep with someone who's not your spouse. 
don't lie, don't steal. One of the big 10 is every seventh day, you are gonna rest. You're gonna rest. Uh, you're gonna honor the Sabbath. Now, I know you're thinking, well, gosh, you don't have to get all legalistic about it, Pastor. <laughs> Can we just acknowledge like how what a twisted response that is? Like somebody says, you need to rest regularly. And our, something in our hearts is like, don't you tell me what to do. Like, you don't have to be all legal. There's nothing legalistic about acknowledging um, what God says is good for us. Um, God is telling us the purpose of the Lord's day is so that we can find Jesus. And the, you know what? The, the people of God in the New Testament, the early church, found that they needed to gather together regularly into, into, in order to experience God's presence. Because they knew that if they were going to find God, they would find God in the presence of God's people. And so it's beautiful that the, the God's people in the Old Testament rested on the seventh day, the last day of the week. But in the New Testament, in, uh, in a kind of remembrance of the resurrection of Jesus on Sunday, on the first day of the week. And do we even think about Sunday as the first day of the week? I remember setting up my calendar on my computer and it'll ask you, like, you can start the week on Wednesday if you want, right? <laughs> Sunday is the first day of the week. And God's people in the New Testament begin to, to worship and gather for worship, um, not on the Sabbath on Saturday, but on the Lord's Day on Sunday because they're saying we begin all of our week. We go into our week of work acknowledging that the real work has already been done for us. We rest first. Okay. One of those just practical things would be we're going to make it a priority to be in worship, to be in the presence of God's people one day out of every seven. Um, secondly, can we just talk about the elephant in the room, which is technology? Um, we have, if we're going to talk about real resting, we have to talk about the role of technology in our lives because technology, the promise of technology is the promise of making our lives easier. And yet technology has begun to colonize like all aspects of our lives. And like, I have my phone right here. I'm not like a technophobe, okay? But um, I read this article. They would, they would say, you know these like hip tech startups that are like, you can come to work and you can sit in a beanbag chair. You know, we've got like a slide that you can slide down on your way out, and it's really cool. There's like a cafe, a cafe like you can get a free latte, and we've got a dry cleaner here for you, and we've got a cafeteria. You eat all your meals for free. What they're pointing out is like, under the guise of just being really cool and hip, a lot of these really cool hip companies are like colonizing all of their employees' lives. They're providing all of these services for free so that you never actually stop working. Now, that's a pretty awesome critique of like Silicon Valley and, and whatnot, but the reality is that technology is doing the same thing in our lives, isn't it? Um, that our devices have turned our lives and our hearts into digital sweatshops, where because we can work at any time, we find it hard to not work at any time. And I'm talking to myself here. I love technology. Um, and technology isn't going away. But you, you know, the, the reality is that when you worked in a factory, when you left the factory, it's really hard to like build a car if you're not at the car building factory, right? Or like if you're a farmer, 
it's really easy to walk away from the field and you're no longer farming. But when so many of us are knowledge workers, you know, when we don't produce things, but we just write words on screens that now go with us. I heard somebody say this today, like literally like an hour ago in this room, somebody said, um, my, my last computer had, a, my first computer had a smaller hard drive than my phone, right? We have supercomputers in our pockets. All the, okay, you get the point, right? Um, I, uh, my wife and I came across this book by a guy named Andy Crouch called The TechWise Family. Look, technology's not going away. But one of the things he says is there are healthy and unhealthy ways to make use of technology in our lives. And um, he talks about structuring our time with regard to our technology. He, he just, this is one of the, the principles he, he talks about. He says, we're designed for a rhythm of work and rest. So one hour a day, one day a week, and one week a year, we turn off our devices and worship, feast, play, and rest together. I mean, what a, what a difference it would make for our families if one hour a day, one day a week, and one week a year, we just turned off of our phones. Not use the features that allow our phones while they're working to not work. Like, isn't that great? Like, do not disturb is a feature of my phone, but I can just turn it off, right? Um, how can we capture the best technology offers without letting it overrun our lives? And then the final thing I'm gonna say is this. Um, uh, to recapture the idea of eating dinner together. Um, Madeline Levine is a, uh, she's not a Christian as far as I know, she's a psychologist, uh, she's a professor at Stanford University, I think, and um, in, in her book, The Price of Privilege, uh, she talks about, we've, we've known for a long time that, that children who grew up in poor families are at higher risk for lots of things. But what she had begun to discover as a psychiatrist is that her, uh, children growing up in very affluent homes were actually beginning to display signs of uh, uh, you know, the, those factors that you would, that you would not um, expect to see in children growing up in wealthy, affluent homes. And um, here's what she says. She says, perhaps the single most important ritual a family can observe is having dinner together. Families who eat together five or more times a week have kids who are significantly less likely to use tobacco, alcohol, or marijuana. They have higher grade point averages, less depressive symptoms, and fewer suicide attempts than families who eat together two or fewer times a week. Eating together reinforces the idea that family members are interested, available, and concerned about each other. It provides a reliable time and place for kids to share accomplishments, challenges, and worries to check in with parents and siblings, or simply to feel part of the family. One of the profound ironies, uh, she quotes a, a, a student who says that, um, my mom is always there, but she's never really there. Uh, one of the profound ironies is that affluence allows parents to be physically present while not emotionally connected to their children. And so we're rushing our kids from activity to activity to activity, sacrificing things like eating together as a family because we want to have help, help, like happy, well-adjusted, athletic, beautiful, talented, smart children. And so we're taking them these things and we're sacrificing the thing that actually helps them become those things that we want. What would it look like for us to make a commitment? I mean, let me just say this. What if, what if, we, what if you, um, this week, looked at your spouse and said, 
One of those three things, church, uh, technology, eating together as a family, we're just gonna make, a, we're gonna make a commitment to one of those three things, to intentionally embrace rest as a family. God invites you to rest, to stop doing, and to find rest in Him. This is the last thing I'm gonna say. I remember um, several years ago when my older boys were, were little, one and a half, two years old, and they loved playing hide and seek with their dad. And um, I, I can remember playing, playing hide and seek with my kids. I think every parent has had this experience. You, you're playing hide and seek with a little kid. And you say, okay, I'm going to count to ten. You go hide. And you count seven, eight, nine, ten. Ready or not, here I come. And they pop out. And they're like, here I am. And you're like, no, 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 no. Hey, let me tell you. Okay, you're going to hide. I'm going to count. And then I'm going to come and look for you. I'm going to come and find you. And I go, okay, okay. And you count seven, eight, nine, ten. Ready or not, here I come. And I pop out. Here I am. And you start thinking, like, what's wrong? What's going on with this kid? Like, is he, is he a little bit slow? In the uptake? You know, let's just try this again. Seven, eight, nine, ten. Ready or not, here I come. Here I am. And it starts to sink in that my son has never, it's never occurred to him to hide from his dad. Because he's never experienced a thought, a moment that didn't say, my dad loves me. My dad loves me. The reality for each of us is that you are going to hide unless you've heard the voice of your father that says, I love you. And the good news of the gospel is this. You don't have to hide anymore because God loves you. God loves you and he invites you to physically, tangibly mark off on your calendar a reminder of his love for you. He reminds you that you don't have to hide behind your phone or behind your kids or behind being busy, you know, keeping yourselves busy to tell yourself you're a good parent. You don't have to hide behind your work. You don't have to hide because God loves you. He has done everything for you. And he has come to you in Jesus to give you rest. That's the good news. Will you pray with me? God, thank you. Thank you that you speak to us. Thank you that you give us rest. God, I pray that you would help us to look to Jesus with faith. Having seen him as the one who has accomplished uh, on the cross what we could not do, that he has forgiven us of our sin, that he has reconciled us to you, that we don't have to worry that we're going to miss out on something at the end of the day. Because you give us time. You give us your time. Please help us to rest. In Jesus' name, amen.